0: Open your Bibles this morning, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10, and we'll be starting in verse 26 in a minute, Matthew 10, 26. What do you fear the most? What is your greatest fear? Chapman University does, I think, a yearly study, but at least they did it a couple times recently, did a survey on American fears in 2017. The number one fear in 2017 for Americans was corrupt government officials. 74.5% of those responding out of the 1,200 that were polled said they were afraid or very afraid of corrupt government officials. Number two on the list, American Health Care Act, Trump Care. I never even knew there was such a thing as Trump Care. But 55% of Americans were afraid of that or very afraid of that. Um, Third on the list, 53.1%, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Number four, um, about 52%, pollution of drinking water. Number five, not having enough money for the future, 50%. Interestingly enough, in 2017, 30th on the list, pandemic or major pandemic, only 32.8%. I wonder if you took that poll today, what would be number one on our list? Isn't that interesting? Uh, Just for those of you like me who are terrified of sharks, um, 41st on the list, 25% are like me, terrified of sharks. Uh, Some of you I know are terrified of reptiles, that includes snakes and lizards and whatever else the reptiles are, 23.6%. That's 44th on the list in 2017. And 48th on the list, dying. Only 22% were afraid of dying. Now, I don't know how you put sharks ahead of dying, because the reason I'm afraid of a shark is that it could kill me. But I guess maybe I'm just afraid of it hurting me and not necessarily killing me. I, I don't know how that plays out. The, the, the really interesting thing is that was 2017. 2014, listen to the top five. I'll go through them much quick, more quickly. Walking alone at night was the number one fear in 2014. Becoming a victim of identity theft was Second. Safety on the Internet, third. Number fourth, being a victim of a random or mass shooting. Now, does that make sense? 2014 versus 2017, now versus 2020, what we're afraid of. Number five on the list is what most of us would used to think of as the number one fear. Public speaking was number five on the list. But you notice it didn't even crack the top five. What they said, those who took the study said this about it. We are beginning to see trends that people tend to fear what they are exposed to in the media. Now, does that start to make sense of the difference in the fears, what they're exposed to in the media, what they're seeing all the time? Many of the top ten fears this year can be directly correlated to the top media stories of the past year. So walking alone at night has dropped all the way to number 56 from number one in three years. And public speaking ranks as number 52 in 2017 versus number 5. While random mass shootings are at 35, safety on the internet didn't even make the top 80. Fear of identity theft was still at number 14. What we come to understand is a lot of times our fears are linked to what we are focused on, what we're hearing about. We tend to grow in our fears of things that other people even put out there. We are, we are changed and moved. Now, some of you have always feared certain things, so on your list, it would stay pretty constant, but other things come in and out of the list. And that has to do with how we're motivated by those things. Now, it's amazing, fear of death, but one of the things I don't even think they asked for on the survey is fear of God. So as Christians, we would wonder where that would fit on the list or rank on the list for even us here today. Where does fear of God even fit with fear of Sharks or fear of death and those kind of things. Well, Before we dig into our passage, because the reason I'm bringing that up is because our passage is all about fear. And uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the fact that you are here with us. In your spirit, you are meeting with us and you're at work in this place. And you're also at work uh, around the world in whatever form the gospel is going out. Lord, we trust you to work. And this morning we need the Holy Spirit to do His work in our lives that we might be receptive, that we would understand the Scriptures, that we would know the Scriptures, that we would see how they impact us, where they fit in our lives and where we need to change. And not only to show us where we need to change, but we trust Your Holy Spirit to change us as we submit to Your work in our lives. Do this work among us this morning for Your name's sake. Amen. Matthew 10, we're going to start in verse 26 and go through verse 33. Follow along in your Bible as I read. This is Jesus speaking, and he says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven." This is God's word, God's revelation to us this morning. Listen to it. Our theme this morning is King Jesus gives instructions to his apostles as to how they are to respond to persecution. King Jesus gives instructions to his apostles as to how they are to respond to persecution. So we are still in the same set of instructions that began in the beginning of chapter 10 where Jesus is giving his apostles instructions as they go out on mission, as they go out now two by two to continue the work that he has already begun to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, that the Messiah is here, and that people needed to turn and trust in the Messiah. That message is what they were going to proclaim. And so he began instructions. He told them what they were going to do, what kind of ministry they would have in the first section. And then last week we saw that he promised that they would be persecuted on that mission and persecuted for that message. And he took the very specific instructions for that very specific mission and began to broaden them out uh, to all of his ambassadors throughout all generations. And that's where we find ourselves today. For the ambassadors of Jesus Christ who go out to proclaim the gospel message, you will be persecuted. We saw that last week. Now, in response to that persecution, what must you be aware of? What must you be careful of? So we see the word so in verse 26. So, have no fear. Therefore, have no fear of them. Therefore, you have to do what? You have to look around, look back to see what the therefore is there for. And what just came? Persecution. So, tied back to the section on persecution, persecution is still the context what is the natural reaction to persecution? Jesus said he was going to send out his sheep among wolves. If you were as a sheep to suddenly have the sun rise, and instead of finding yourself among a herd of sheep, it's not a herd, a flock of sheep, that's better, among a flock, instead of being around in a flock of sheep, you found yourself in a pack of wolves. What would your reaction be? Well, I'll tell you what your reaction should be. If you were a sheep among a pack of wolves, you should be terrified because your life expectancy is very short. And Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And then he went on to explain what that means by going through all of the ways they would be persecuted. In fact, he told them that they would be offered up to death. And in light of this natural and understandable response to persecution, what does Jesus tell his ambassadors? He says, this is what's going to happen to you. We should be terrified. That's a natural reaction. But now, in light of it, he tells them to fear not. In the face of terrifying fear, fear not. Let's walk through what he says to them. So he says, so have no fear of them. Have no fear of the wolves. Have no fear of those who would persecute you. Why not? Well, the first reason is because the gospel will be made known. Don't fear men because the gospel will be made known. They are to go out preaching the gospel. That will bring persecution. But Jesus gives a promise here. He promises that persecution will fail. Persecution will fail. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now the question is, what is covered and hidden that will one day be revealed and made known? Is this a general principle of God's all-knowing, all-seeing? The general principle that all things will be revealed one day? I, I don't think so. I believe that this is more tied to the context than some believe. So this is through my study, and, and I'm not the only one who sees it this way, but maybe we're in the minority. When you look at what Jesus had told them about proclaiming the gospel, sending them out among wolves, and then in verse 27, telling them that what he told them in the dark, they would say in the light, what, he, what they heard whispered, they proclaim on the housetops, that's going right into the gospel message. So what has been hidden and covered is the gospel of the kingdom was someday going to be fully revealed. Some of it is now covered, but it will be made known even though for a time it is hidden. So right now Jesus talks in the dark. He whispers. But the time will come when his ambassadors will proclaim what he told them in the dark, in the light. They will proclaim everything Jesus taught them. So I believe that this is a promise that what was once hidden will be revealed. That once was once whispered in the dark will be proclaimed from the housetops. God's kingdom will be built. The gospel message will not be stopped because of persecution. Persecution will fail. So when you go out sharing the gospel, the promise is God's kingdom will be built, souls will be saved. The church will grow. And if you have that promise as the backdrop, that makes sense of verse 27. Therefore, boldly proclaim the gospel loudly. <laughs> it sounds redundant. Boldly proclaim the gospel loudly, but that's what Jesus says in 27. Say it in the, say it in the light. So be bold with it. Don't, don't hide the gospel. Proclaim it. Shout it from the rooftops. Don't hide the truth. Don't whisper the truth. Don't be afraid to make a bold proclamation. Because God has promised that his kingdom will be built and the gospel will prevail, we can be bold and loud in our witness in the face of persecution. This is not a promise that comes when, when the world is accepting and when Christians have all the liberties that they want and the religious freedom that they desire in those moments proclaim the gospel loudly, but in, in a time of persecution, you should probably pull it in and stay, stay quiet and, and go into hiding. That, no, this is exactly in the place of persecution. What should your response be? We can share the gospel boldly and loudly because God has promised that the gospel will not fail. It will go out. It will be known What did Jesus promise in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The the gospel has an offensive, not in the sense of being offensive, though it is an offense to the, the lost. It's on the offense. The church is not to be in a defensive posture, but an offensive posture in the sense of bringing the gospel to the people, even in the face of persecution. How bold should we be when we know that our mission will be successful? Now, this doesn't promise us that every person we share the gospel with or every family member we witness to or every time we go out on the streets and hand out tracts or do those things that someone will be saved. That's not the promise. But it is the promise that overall, throughout our lifetime and in every generation, the gospel will prevail. So be bold. Persecution will fail. Now, I wonder, do you hear, or maybe in your own heart, do you hear the complaint If you're one of the apostles sitting there, and you're listening to all of this in context, I mean, Jesus is just walking through this. There's no, you know, stop this section and come back next week. Jesus just told them they are going to be handed over to death. And then he says, proclaim the message boldly and loudly. When you go out and proclaim the message, you're going to be persecuted. So go out and do it loudly. Don't you hear in your own heart and your own mind? But will cost me my life. You tell me I'm going to be killed for the message, and then you tell me to go shout it. So what does Jesus say to that unspoken fear? It doesn't say anything about the reaction of the disciples as Jesus spoke, but he responds to that unspoken fear with what he says next. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy destroy both soul and body in hell. So that fear that comes, that we are to be bold in the face of persecution that could lead to our death, Jesus says, don't fear men, fear God. Don't fear men, fear God. Why? Well, he makes it real simple. Because men can only kill the body. And God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us to, not to fear men but to fear God because your soul is safe in Christ. As the gospel witness, as the ambassador, those who persecute you can only kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Your soul is safe in Christ. So if you can, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 talked some about this yesterday at the funeral service, but I wanted, it, it fits perfectly right here again. Romans 8. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both body and soul. Your soul is safe in Christ. They may murder you. They may martyr you. They may tie you to the stake. They may, they may burn you to death. They may feed you to the lions. They may put a bullet in your head, but they can't touch your soul. Why not? Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or, do you see it? Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating that tribulation, persecution, sword shall not separate us even though we're going to be killed for his sake. Slaughtered like sheep. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us because neither death nor life shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the face of persecution, we understand that our soul is safe in Christ They can't touch your soul. I love what Matthew Henry says here, and it's a little bit of a long quote, so hang in there with me. They who truly fear God need not fear man. And they who are afraid of the least sin need not be afraid of the greatest trouble. Listen carefully here. The fear of man brings a snare, a perplexing snare that disturbs our peace, an entangling snare by which we are drawn into sin. And therefore it must be carefully watched and striven and prayed against. Be the times never so difficult, enemies never so outrageous, and events never so threatening, yet need we not fear, yet will we not fear, though the earth be removed, while we have so good a God, so good a cause, and so good a hope through grace. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of God causes us to triumph in the face of all kinds of things, including persecution, because we have a good God, a good cause, and a good hope through grace. So nothing can touch your soul. So we can go out boldly because we know who holds our souls in his hands. Secondly, we can go out boldly because unbelievers will be punished eternally in hell. You say, well, wait a second, how does that fit? Well, the truth of it is this. The reason we must go out boldly is because those who need Christ, those who don't have Christ, will be punished eternally in hell if they do not come to Christ. That's the promise here. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God because hell is real. Fear God because eternal punishment of body and soul is real. Hell is a real place. And those who don't trust in Christ will spend eternity there. Now, some people have been confused by the idea of the word destroy, the idea that God would destroy both body and soul in hell. And so there's, there's a teaching called annihilationism that teaches that after you die, if you're not a Christian, you will be annihilated in hell, you will be destroyed and, and cease to exist. That eternal punishment isn't eternal punishment, it's just temporary punishment, the destruction. Now, we'll live eternally uh, with, with Christ in heaven, uh, but those who die without Christ will not be eternally punished. And one of the places they go is here, and they point to the word destroy. Well, God's going to destroy them in the sense of annihilate them. But the destruction that Christ is talking about here is not the, dest- the destruction of them completely, but the destruction of the well-being of body and soul. They are going to be ruined, not made extinct. They are going to be punished and not annihilated from, from existence. It's the ruin of the body and soul It's that idea of being destroyed over and over and over, yet not being extinct. What we have to realize as Christians is that the soul is more valuable than the body. You think much about that on a daily basis. Is that something that rings true? The soul is more valuable than the body. Eternity matters more than the present. Now, there is that saying, Someone is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I would say that that is not Christianity's problem right now. Our problem is not that we think too much of heaven, but we think too little of heaven. Not that we think so much of eternity, but we think so little of it. That, that, that's our problem. We, we are very tied to the present. Very tied to the present. And that is why we must proclaim the gospel. Because people who haven't been thinking of eternity are thinking about it a little bit more right now. And people who've been more concerned about their physical health than their spiritual health might be more open to it now with the closer prospect of, of death and eternity. And we, if we know the truth of where lost people go, we should be moved with compassion to share the good news with them. It is so important if you're not a Christian to understand the fact that because you're a sinner who has denied Jesus Christ, who has rejected Jesus Christ because of your sin, you will spend eternity without Christ in hell forever. And you will be punished both body and soul, physical and spiritual torment forever. But you do not have to go there. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Be saved today. Realize that Christ came to die for sinners, to pay the punishment so that you don't have to, so that you can live eternally with your Father, your Heavenly Father, in heaven. But the message is true and the gospel is clear. Eternity matters, the soul matters. We worry so much about our bodies these days. We worry so much about our physical lives. We spend so much time and effort on that which will only be here for at best 120 years if you set the record. And then you go into eternity. We're more concerned now with extending physical life than possessing eternal life. We're more concerned with physical health and spiritual health. And you can see that so much. Even among those who call themselves Christians, the terror, the fear, the things that come, we must understand what really matters in life. I'm all for exercise, at least hypothetically. I'm all for eating right and and taking care of yourself and and seeking to to be healthy so that God can use you, extend your life as as God grants you grace and favor, to serve Him as long as He leaves you here, of course. Of course. This is not, well, <laughs> eat, drink, and be merry because uh, the soul is all that matters and tomorrow we will die and the eternity is all that we care about. No, that's not the, that's, that's, that would be against Scripture. But it's about priorities, about what we think about most. And there's so many applications here, just trying to pick a few. Do we spend more time exercising than reading our Bible and praying? We spend more time uh, tracking what we eat on Fitness Pal than we do uh, confessing our sin and dealing with our spiritual health. You put in your application there. We're more excited about losing 10 pounds or memorizing 10 verses. You say, well, that's not not a one-for-one. I'm not trying to make it a one-for-one. I'm talking about what we focus on, where we spend our time, where we spend our energy, what we're living for. Fear God. Learn to fear God by reading about God and learning who God is in his word. Learn to fear God more than men. If you focus on men, you will fear men. If you focus on God, you will fear God because you'll come to know the one who matters most. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your energy? Number three, don't fear. Trust God. Every section has the word fear in it. This time, the word fear doesn't come until the end of the point. So in verse 29, Jesus begins They're all related, obviously, but a, a new section here. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So the fear not comes at the end of the section, verse 31. Don't fear, and this time it's general. It doesn't necessarily say, don't fear men. It says, fear not. Don't fear in general. Why not? Because you are to trust God. Don't fear trust God and he gives us the why right at the beginning uh, at the end and then he, and he explains it in the in this stuff before because your heavenly father values you more than any other creature what creature does he use to show us our value he uses sparrows have you been seeing any sparrows lately have you paid any attention to any sparrows have you been watching the sparrows intently to see if one poor sparrow fell to the ground and died and when it did Did you go over, say a few words, dig a little hole, and... No, sparrow died. It's a sparrow. Who cares about sparrows? Sparrows are everywhere. Sparrows are a dime a dozen. And that's the point. Sparrows have such little value that you never just bought one sparrow. They were so cheap that you always bought two with the smallest coin you could get. You know, two sparrows for a penny. No one bought one sparrow. Why? Because one sparrow by itself wasn't even worth it. But notice that not one sparrow so-called worthless creature, worthless sparrow, dies outside of God's providence. God ordains the lifespan of every creature, even those we see as most insignificant. But notice not only God's providential care and his sovereign control over all of creation, but he doesn't just talk about his sovereignty here. He talks about his sovereignty in light of his loving care, his, a loving relationship. Notice that the God who is in control is described as your father. Your father. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Jesus makes it personal. Jesus makes it about a loving relationship. Your father, your heavenly father, your gracious heavenly father cares for his creation to the minutest detail to the most insignificant creatures. Are you not of more value than many sparrows? I mean, maybe you're worth about 20 sparrows, right? Maybe 25. I'm not sure. Is that, is that what Jesus is saying, is that you're just slightly better? Does not the cross demonstrate our value that far exceeds, not even in comparison, the value of all of creation, of every animal, of every tree, and in this day and age of Earth Day and celebrating the Earth and celebrating our planet and all the paganism that goes with it, does not the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrate your value to God? Christ only died for people. He only died for his image bearers. He did not die on the cross for any animal, any plant. He only died for people. Are you not of more value than they? It's not, even, it's not even a comparison. Of course you are. So trust God, secondly, because your heavenly father is in total control. Your heavenly father is in total control. Your heavenly father, your father, Christian, your father is sovereign. That's what he's saying. Now, if, if this is only pointing to God's knowledge of the death of every creature, what comfort would that be? So we see, we, I, want, I want you to see this. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. What does it mean to be apart from your father? Does that just mean apart from your father knowing? Uh, no sparrow dies that God doesn't notice. God notices every, is that comforting to, to know that God just sees everything? Is that comforting to you that if someone dies or something dies, well, well, God knows. He sees. Well, how about you won't die without God's care? Maybe it's just talking about apart from God's care. Is that comforting? It's almost like, you know, if, if someone dies, God is there. He's, he's kind of there with the person. That's more comforting than just knowing something. Or, oh, how about you won't die without God's permission? Well, that's, we're getting more comforting But how about this? You won't die until the moment ordained and orchestrated by your loving Heavenly Father. If a sparrow doesn't die apart from God's sovereign providential care, how much more does He providentially care for our lives? That's the point. God's sovereign control over all things fits in and comforts us in the time of our lives and in the time of our deaths. No one, not one person, dies outside of God's plan. I love what the evangelist George Whitfield said. We are immortal until our work on earth is done, until the moment God has ordained. The Bible says that your days are numbered in his book. Can any of your days be shortened by something else that happens to you? Can anything take you before your time? We are immortal until our work on earth is done. That's the comfort of God's total and sovereign control over our lives. And we learn that from the sparrows. Now apply that truth to mankind, and the point becomes even greater. Comfort is found in knowing that your life is in the hands of your heavenly Father. Now, this doesn't promise you one day more. You say, oh, I'm immortal until, until my work on earth is done. Well, that means I've got 20 or 30 more years, right? Because my work obviously isn't done. No. There's no promise of one more breath, one more day here. This doesn't promise us a life without death or sorrow. In fact, the promise is death will come. We will be handed over to death. We will die for Christ, some of us. The comforting promise is that our lives and our deaths are in the Father's hands. You are right here. Child of God, you are in the Father's hands. And nothing will happen to you outside of his sovereign, loving control. And notice how he drives that point home in verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Trust God because your heavenly Father cares about the smallest details of your life. God cares for you so much that he has numbered all the hairs on your head. Now, how many of you have numbered all the hairs on your head? Now, some of you, it would take less time than for others. But have you numbered every hair on your head? Have you taken the time to care? Have you even cared as much about yourself as God cares for you? I mean, this morning when you were combing your hair and then you looked at the brush or the comb and you noticed 15 hairs in there, did you take the number and subtract it so you knew exactly how many hairs you had lost and how many hairs you had? Is that what we do? Do we care for ourselves like that? No, some of you just shave it all off. So you don't have to worry about, cow- I don't have any, zero. Shaved them all off today. It's nice and smooth. <laughs> God cares for the smallest details. And this is exactly what so many people, even Christians, think. Exactly the opposite of what so many people think. They believe that God cares for the big things. God's in control of the big things. God makes sure big stuff happens, but the little things, the daily details of our lives? Well, God's got more important things to do than count the hairs on your head, doesn't he? Well, yeah, of course he does. I mean, what doesn't matter how many hairs you have, But but he does it anyway. Because he cares. He cares. Now, God isn't limited as if in counting the hairs on your head means he can't take care of uh, the political things going on or can't take care of a virus because he's there uh, watching every hair that drops or every sparrow that falls. No. God is God, and he can do it all without, without a sweat all the time. But this tells us that God cares for the small things. He cares for the little things. God's sovereign care for his people is shown in the smallest of details down to the very hairs on your head. If he governs the smallest details, won't he take care of the bigger things? I mean, just let that, from the, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If he's counting the hairs on your head, isn't he counting and taking care of things that are far more important than how many hairs you have? And the answer is, absolutely. Trust God his care for you, to the small de- smallest details. And then the last thing in this section, doesn't have to do with fear, but it is the outworking of the fear that shows up in persecution. Jesus is the only way to God. So Christ wraps up this section on our response to persecution, which is fear, what he teaches us about fear, and then he says this, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But, contrast, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There are only two options. Either you will acknowledge Jesus publicly, or you will deny Jesus publicly. And so the first thing he says is acknowledging Jesus Christ publicly is essential for entrance into the kingdom of God. Acknowledging Jesus Christ publicly is essential for entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, I believe we have to take what Jesus is saying here in the very specific context that he gives it. There is a general application to acknowledging or denying Jesus, but it's specifically given in light of response to persecution and the fear that we have. To acknowledge means to confess allegiance, identify with. So Jesus is talking specifically about publicly confessing allegiance under the threat or the reality of persecution. Under the threat of persecution or under act of persecution, will you all of a sudden deny, no, I don't know. I don't know Jesus. I'm not a Christian. Nope, no, nope, not me. Or will you acknowledge, yes, I am a Christian. I do know Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior and Master. Under threat or under the reality of persecution, what will your response be when they say, do you know Jesus? Are you one of those Christ followers? Uh. What will happen if I answer yes? What will that cost me? And so then Jesus gives a second point. Denying Jesus Christ publicly will lead to being denied entrance into the kingdom of God. Ooh. If I acknowledge Jesus, he acknowledges me. If I confess allegiance with him, he confesses allegiance with me. If I deny allegiance, he denies allegiance with me. Are you going to identify with Christ under the threat or under the reality of persecution? What's your response going to be? And there have been times when claiming to be a Christian has been advantageous. Those are fewer than when it has been a problem. But there have been times, especially in our country, when claiming to be a Christian helped you move ahead. Have you noticed that that's not the case anymore? I remember the day when, when singers and sports uh, uh, Sports athletes, that was like redundant there. Athletes, great athletes and famous people would come out and say, I'm a Christian, and they would be applauded and lauded, and and it would lead to endorsements. It would lead to prosperity. Anymore, how's that going to work? And so there's times it's been advantageous to be a Christian, to to come out publicly for Christ. But for the most most part, all throughout Christian history and church history, it has been a problem. It has led to negative things, persecution. And so, because of the cost of claiming allegiance to Christ, that is why we are tempted to fear and to deny Jesus. Now, one example of this that maybe has already come to your mind is um, my wife's favorite apostle, Peter. You know the story, right? Is it ringing? Now you're thinking, "Oh, if 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 I deny Christ publicly, I will be denied entrance into the kingdom of heaven." Well, what about Peter? Is Peter in heaven? I mean, Peter's the most famous denier of all, is he not? I mean, they put it right in the scripture. Can't beat it. How many times did he deny Jesus? Three times in one night. It's hard to beat that. Now I'm being a little, I don't know why I'm, if it's sarcasm or what it is. I'm just trying to point this out. Peter says in Mark 14, 71, I do not know this man of who you speak. I do not know this man. Who, that guy? I've never never met him a day in my life. I don't know who that guy is. I'm just hanging out here by the fire, you know, just just wandering around the streets in the middle of the night, happened to hear something was going on, just showed up to check it out. No, I don't know him. Isn't that exactly for fear of persecution, for fear? And and doesn't it make sense why he would be afraid? Jesus is on trial. He's just been hauled off by soldiers. They can guess he's about to die. Are you going to jump in on that? I'm with him. No, of course not. And this is exactly the point. But I believe that this denial is not referring to someone who remains silent or keeps their allegiance quiet. I believe this is the public denial or the public acknowledgement under persecution. So if Peter just went about his his way and never said anything, would he have been denying Jesus to keep quiet, staying silent? I don't believe so. None of the other apostles are called deniers of Christ. But only Peter, who made it public when he was put to the test. So will Jesus deny Peter before his Father in heaven? Now, I hope you know the answer already, but the answer is no. Why not? Because what did Jesus Christ do for Peter? He restored Peter. And what does Peter do later in the book of Acts? Does Peter continue to deny Jesus? Does he continue to hide? Does he continue to say, no, I don't know that man? No, on the day of Pentecost, right in the middle of Jerusalem, among the same people who crucified Jesus, Jesus is already crucified, what does Peter do publicly? He preaches the gospel publicly. He did deny. He denied three times in one night. But as far as we know, that's the last time he denied. And from there on, as Christ restored him, he publicly proclaims the gospel despite the fact that church history says that he was crucified upside down for his faith. So we're not talking here about a one-time denial or a momentary denial. We're not talking about the sin, the denial that we make when we sin or the denial of silence. We're talking about a denial that is final and enduring, a denial that under fear of persecution or under persecution, we turn away from Christ, we deny Christ and never go back. And so we have to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here in light of its context, in light of its application. So the question is, how do we live this out in our time? So do you have to find a rooftop somewhere to be acknowledged by Jesus in heaven? Find a rooftop, cry out, I'm a Christian, I'm with Jesus. And if you don't do that, not get into heaven. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that you have to boldly and loudly on Facebook, you know, put it out there publicly on Twitter for everyone to know, I'm a follower of Christ, I I will not deny him. If you don't do that, you're not a Christian. You won't go to heaven. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. I think one of the best ways we live out our public allegiance with Christ is in our public membership in a church that entails our public worship weekly. Now, this isn't me getting on anyone who uh, isn't coming to church right now because of the uh, the concerns for health and safety. Um, That's not my point. I'm talking about in other times. Christians publicly profess their allegiance to Christ every week. And how do they do that? They show up at a public worship service. They are publicly baptized, professing their faith in Christ. They publicly take the Lord's Supper, proclaiming his death till he comes. That's the most basic way that we continue to publicly proclaim our faith in Christ. Does that mean that Christians in China who are in the underground church are somehow going to be denied entrance into heaven because they're doing everything secretly? Is that the point? No, that's not the point either. They still worship. They still do those things for fear of someone breaking down the door and coming in and catching them do it, but they're going to do it anyway, even under that fear. Now, they're not doing it publicly because immediately publicly would probably lead to all kinds of persecution, overt persecution. And remember, Christ said to flee persecution if you can. But... Once you are captured, once you are questioned, once they do break down the door and they come in and you say, no, we're not Christians here. Uh, We're just having a book club. The challenges of how we apply this are difficult, especially difficult for us in America because we have undergone such little persecution for so long. And I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but we wonder how long that is going to last And are we prepared to undergo persecution for the cause of Christ? Or will we deny Christ and walk away from the church and walk away from worship and walk away from the ordinances because of what it will cost us? It's a real question. Are you prepared to take a public stand? I don't mean on Facebook. I don't mean downtown. I don't mean on a rooftop. I mean through simply worshiping when you're told you can't worship. These are real challenges that we face But don't miss the most important thing in this passage. Who Jesus claims to be. Who Jesus claims to be. Jesus Christ is the king. And the king determines who's allowed into the kingdom. How you stand in relationship to Jesus is how you stand in relationship to God. If you don't acknowledge Jesus, you won't be in heaven. If you deny a relationship or identity with Jesus, you'll be denied entrance into heaven. Jesus represents God. Your eternal fate is tied to him. And think about how how mind-altering or mind-blowing that is for those who are listening. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. He's not just a moral example. He is God in human flesh, the Savior of mankind, and you must acknowledge him. You must confess allegiance to Christ. You must identify with him to be saved, to be in heaven. And what's fascinating here is something that throws evangelicals off. What Jesus says about us is more important than what we say about him. I don't know, it's not going to be like the old jokes, but if you were to show up at the pearly gates of heaven, it's not like that, but if you were, and you knock on the door, and they say, why should I let you in? You say, because I know Jesus. Is that what matters here? Whether you know Jesus? Whether you confess Jesus? Well, of course it does matter, but what matters more than your confession, your allegiance? What will Jesus say about you? Does he confess you, acknowledge you? So you can go back and read it I'm not going to take the time, Matthew 7. There'll be all kinds of people who when they enter into eternity will say, Lord, Lord, what will Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. Well, I know you. It's not whether we know Jesus as much as he knows us. That can shake us a little bit because we're not used to hearing Put that way, it's more about what you confess and what you believe and what you know. And I believe you can have assurance of salvation. Romans 8 talks about that. But it's because Christ knows you. God knows you. God has changed you. God has accepted you. Not what you say about him, but what he says about you. So what do we do? In conclusion, Christian, fight the fear of man and grow in fearing God fight the fear of man and grow in fearing God uh, we've taught a, a class multiple times in Sunday school about the fear of man and there's some great resources uh, there's, there's all kinds of things we could talk about here one question a couple questions here whose approval do you crave the most whose acceptance do you crave the most are you more concerned what people think about you or what God thinks about you are you more concerned about being approved by man accepted by man or approved by God vital questions The question then is, whose approval can you live without? Because in most times in church history, you're not going to be able to win the approval of man if you're seeking the approval of God. You're not going to be popular. You're not going to be accepted. You're not going to win any awards. It's it's fascinating, and we have to we have to fear God more than man. Grow in fearing God. Grow in fearing God by reading the word of God, by reading good books that, that point you to who God is and what God has done. Fill your heart and mind with who God is, his character, and his works. Sing those songs. Be careful of the Christian music and the Christian books that make it all about you all about your happiness, all about your fulfillment, all about how you can get better. The the Christian bookstores, if there are any left, (laughs) then not too many left, are filled with self-improvement with Bible verses. Fill your mind with knowing God, His ways and His works. See your love for God and your fear of God grow. And if you're not a Christian here today, you need to understand that eternal punishment is surer than temporary joy. Eternal punishment is surer than temporary joy. There's no temporary joy that will outlast eternity. No sin is worth eternal punishment. No one thing you go after, not even all of them put together, is worth what awaits those who deny Christ. It's not worth it. So turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Father... Help us to apply these truths. It's not always easy to understand what the Scripture says. It's not always easy to see how it works out in our lives. But, Lord, do your work in us, that we would fear you and not man, that we would live for eternity and not for this present world, that we would understand that our souls matter more than our bodies, that we would live for what matters, live for what counts, and that we would trust you because of who you are, our loving Heavenly Father, in total control of every moment of every day of our lives. We live sure of your care and we live comforted by that thought today. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.